Anyway, that's with you have that. And then um, about three years ago, I uh, asked myself, what was the word that I heard most clients use? And it turned out to be triggers. You know, how we trigger each other. And so I worked uh, on a book on this topic. And that, and you have the cover of the book on your seat. And mainly I wanted to share it not only to let you know it's coming out December 10th. And I'll do a workshop on this. I think it's in January. Here. Um, but on the back you have your practice for freeing yourself from the grip of fear. And I have my uh, four-part little program. So I also wanted you to have that. So um, in case there's anybody in the group who ever felt fear. (laughs) So. And our book for today is the one she, uh, the one that Romy mentioned, which is the five true things. And... uh, I'm really happy with how this came out. And it's a shorter version of the five things we cannot change, and I also revised it. So this is our topic for today, how to um, work with the uh, first part of the famous prayer that we've all heard May I have the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. May I have the courage to change the things I can. And may I have the wisdom to know the difference. And most of the self-help movement is about the second one. How do you change things? So I thought, well, we should put some energy into how do you just accept the realities that all of us face existentially as humans. Um, And of course, there are thousands of them, but I chose five specific ones. And um, that's our topic today. Along these lines, uh, I'll just share that um, when I woke up this morning, my first thought was, oh, Today's the day I'll be at Spirit Rock. But my second thought was um, was this. I thought of, well, maybe I should start by mentioning the famous prayer by Reinhold Niebuhr. Prayer was written in 1943 during World War II. And I thought, I thought of the prayer and I asked myself this question. What if the choices I've made in the course of my life were all in keeping with this prayer? What if in all these past decades I had made decisions based on the wisdom to know the difference between what I could change and what I couldn't? And it's a question that any of us can ask. And it's not supposed to be guilt-tripping or anything because uh, it takes more than a lifetime to find out how to be healthy and be healthy. 
maybe that's why there's a belief in reincarnation. So you'll keep coming back and trying again. Unless I am back trying again. But I'm still not completing the whole project. (laughs) So um, I thought I'd just share that and uh, something you might want to think about too. So let's begin with um, just uh, the first paragraph of the book, The Five True Things. Um, And I'm on page Roman numeral nine for the people who have the book. I'll use the book throughout the day, but you don't have to have one. I'll always read what I what I think is useful, but I'll always give the page numbers. There are some things in life over which we have no control, probably most things. We discover in the course of our lives that reality refuses to bow to our commands. Another force, sometimes with a sense of humor, usually comes into play with different plans. We are forced to let go when we want so much to hold on and to hold on when we want so much to let go. Our lives include unexpected twists, unwanted endings, and challenges of every puzzling kind. Five of those challenges are our topic today. And as we go along, when you have a question, just raise your hand, but I also will check in with you at the end of each little subsection and see if you have any questions. So you remember in uh, high school geometry that they gave us some givens. Givens are facts in evidence that you don't have to prove. So for instance, in plain geometry, one of the axioms or givens is the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. And you don't have to prove it, everybody knows it. So of course there are thousands of givens. For instance, one given is since we live where we do, there could be an earthquake before the day is over. That's just a given. And when we chose to move here, we implicitly agreed that that might happen. So if it does, we can't complain. We can only manage. If you get the idea. (laughs) So let's look at some specific givens and then I'm going to go back to each one. The first one is, of course, the central Buddhist teaching of impermanence, that nothing lasts forever, that everything is continually changing. In fact, everything is continually evolving, becoming more of what it is, presenting more than it had presented before, opening us in whole new ways. It's such a beautiful realization, but 
for most of us, the idea of impermanence is kind of scary and laden with grief because we wish so much that we could hold on to what we have that's giving us pleasure or has put meaning into our lives. For instance, um, our work, our children, our um, friendships, and so forth. But everything is changing, and that's the first given, that everything changes, and not only does it change, but it also ends, including our own lifetime. Secondly, that we certainly make plans, but a given is that our plans don't always come through. Or another way of saying it is, we find ourselves on a planet in which we're not in full control. Even if we moved to Mars, we wouldn't be in control there either. Third, we notice that try as we may to avoid it, there is certainly pain in everyone's life. And this pain could be physical, could be emotional, could be spiritual. No way to avoid it or get around it. It's just the way things are. Fourth, Things are not always fair. As in the expression, life isn't fair, but it's fair sometimes, but not always. So if I'm designing my life in the opposite direction of these givens, I'll be having a a very hard time because I'll be sitting in the horse, I'll be sitting on the horse in the opposite direction of the way it's going. I'll be sitting backwards in the saddle. Because this is how it is here, here on earth. And five, and the final one that I'm working with, is that people are not loyal and loving, and or loving, all the time. They might be loyal sometimes, and they might be loving sometimes, but it's a given of the human personality that our loyalty might be transitory, might change and end, that our love might be transitory, might change and end, And so if I'm terribly shocked by the infidelity of a partner, I probably have not settled into the full reality of what it means to be with another person. It means that you can trust him or her as far as he or she is trustworthy but it could happen that the trust will be broken. 
And I will spend time on this when we get to it. But um, there's something very positive that I also want to point out about this whole setup. Since everything on the planet is animated by a drive to evolve, it must be that we, who are also part of nature, are geared to evolve too. Now the plants and the animals, they have their own way of evolving. They keep adjusting their survival to the changing conditions. And we have a way of evolving. We adjust ourselves to the realities in the environment around us, same way the trees and the animals do it. Or another way of saying it is, and this is where it's very positive, it must be that if these are the conditions, then these must be the ingredients of growth. They are not penalties. They are not jokes played on us by some angry God in the sky. These added up and lived with in the course of all the decades of our lives and how they come up daily and monthly and yearly and so forth. But when we have finally accepted them in a deeply radical way, when we have said yes to them, they turn out to be a set of ingredients for making us people of depth, compassion, and character. We would be very superficial if everything went our way or if nothing ever changed. We wouldn't have compassion for others if we weren't people who live in pain and have empathy about the pain of others. We wouldn't be people of strong character if we weren't somehow learning more and more skills, many of which we'll learn today, to handle the issues and challenges that come our way of which these five stand out and turn out to be the ones that are universally felt. So somebody now in Cambodia is facing the very same givens we are here in Fairfax. 
placing it in this context of growth gives you a wonderful optimism about the whole topic. I feel that optimism and I love to share it. Uh, Jung, in answer to the question, well, what is it that would make you a most healthy person? He summarizes it very well, and I'll quote it. An unconditional yes to the conditions of existence without protest and without blame. I'm not blaming God or man that it's like this, and I'm not protesting against them. I'm just saying, oh, this is how it is. It's the opposite of the uh, wonderful poem by Omar Khayyam, Muslim poet, uh, who looks at this same list and says this. Ah, love, if you and I could but conspire to change this sorry scheme of things entire, would we not shatter it to bits and mold it nearer to the heart's desire? So if we had our chance, we would change this. We would make it more like what we really want, which is, I want all my plans to work out, no pain, everything fair, everybody loyal and loving, and I'm not, I don't have to do it, but everybody else does. And uh, certainly I don't want anything to change. Well, keeping it on the level of wish is certainly okay. But somehow embracing these as, shall we say, avenues, boulevards that take you where you really want to go makes the whole thing uh, so much more meaningful. Where do I really want to go? I want to become a person of integrity and loving kindness. If that's the purpose of my journey, then uh, it's been set up perfectly because these help us get there. What helps us get there? A world in which things change and end, plans don't always go our way, pain is part of life and to be dealt with, things are not always fair, and... Uh, People are not always loving and loyal. Now, do I simply leave it this way? Or do I work with it personally? So let's see about a way of working with these personally. First, if it certainly is going to happen that everything changes and ends then I would like to build a mindset in which I'm open to changes rather than becoming stuck in a very um, reactionary style. I don't want anything to change. I want to keep everything just as it is. Um, That's not in keeping with the laws of the universe. 
So if I could say, I want to go with the changes to whatever extent they make sense to me. And when endings come, I want to do exactly what all of us mammals are geared to do, which is to grieve the ending and then to acknowledge the space that's been left by what has finally died, including a person. And gradually, as I hold that space in my heart, I continue on my own journey with the beautiful memory. And that memory has deepened my sense of what it means to be human. So things change and ends, but I have it in me to let go. I have it in me to open up. Secondly, things don't go according to plan, but there's also synchronicity. The beautiful, mysterious reality of strange coincidence. Uh, I had made a plan and it didn't work out, but when it didn't work out, I uh, found myself uh, in a whole new territory of my life and I opened up to something entirely new. Or another way of saying it is, there could be a vaster plan at work by something we know not what, we know not how, that wants us to evolve and cancels the plans that don't help us get there in favor of the opportunities to get there. It's a very profound profound way of looking at it. And um, I've been noticing that when I can do this, something widens inside at the heart chakra level. And I say to myself, well, maybe I'm not the one who's doing the design of the David life. And you don't have to be a believer in a, a traditional God to see this. It's just an acknowledgement of the mystery that continually surrounds us. So in response to pain, I can say, yes, there is pain. And what matters is that, um, one, I do all I can to release myself from it. And secondly, I become highly sensitive as a compassionate person toward those who suffer as I do. This is my 50th year as a psychotherapist. I started in 1969. When 2019 rolled around, I said to myself, David, what is the most common problem 
that has been brought up in these 50 years. When you think of all the clients that you have seen. The answer came to me without the slightest hesitation. I didn't even have to ponder to figure out what it was going to be. And I know you won't be surprised. Staying too long in what doesn't work. I'd be out of business (laughs) if people... If people acknowledged, hey, this hurts, get out. Instead of, this hurts, but I'll find a way to live through it. This hurts, but it might get better. The power of that word might that has held us back could be a relationship that's lasting too long when it doesn't work could be a job that doesn't really work for us, could be a friendship, could be anything. But something in us stays put in the midst of suffering. So when we get to that topic, we will say a little more about it. So Right now I'm giving our healthy responses to each one regarding the fact that things are not always fair. Our healthy response is, yes, things are not always fair, but I am making a commitment to be fair in all my dealings. I want to be honest in all the interactions that I might have, both financially and openness about feelings. Or another way of saying it is, the unfairness that I see around me has become a gong that pulls me to my own affirmation, I choose to be fair. There's a lot more to this one. I'll go into it later because it also has to do with retaliation and so forth. And then when it comes to loyal and loving, people are not always loyal and loving, but I can be loyal and loving no matter how they act toward me. That simple phrase, no matter how they act, which we learned in kindergarten. You can stay in your seat no matter what some other rascally kids are doing. You don't have to join them. We learned that way back then. It applies right here. No matter how unloving others are, I will always be loving. And no matter how disloyal they are, I will always be loyal in my commitments and choices. I'm thinking of a couple of lines put in a poem by uh, W.H. Auden. 
if love can't be the same between us two, T-W-O, if love cannot be the same between us two, I'll be the one more loving towards you. Something like that. You get the concept. So you can see how these givens are immediately opening us up into all kinds of wonderful possibilities for growth and surprising paradoxes about human living. And all it takes is an unconditional yes to every one of them and a sense that somehow they're here to help us and a commitment to act in a way that reckons with them and expands them as opportunities for practice. Every one of these is an opportunity for practice. Practice of what? In our tradition, it's the practices of mindfulness and loving kindness. And we'll see that as we go along. So in this sense, it's a wonderfully optimistic topic. Of all the practices I've ever done, hands down, the yes to what is, the accepting the things I cannot change, that's been the most powerful. That's helped me the most. It never fails me. Just going back to that unconditional yes, without protest, without blame. In fact, blame is the opposite of accepting the givens, especially in relationships. So I'll go into that later. But first, I'm going to check in with you because now I've given the overall introduction and then I'm going to start concentrating on each of the five. So, we have a microphone. If you have a question, just raise your hand and we will go from there. Hi, nice to see you. Hello, nice to see you too. So I'm curious, let's say you want to live a life of uh, compassion and uh, and service. And um, let's say you have a partner who cheats on you. And um, you want to say you're going to be the most loyal. There has to also be a part of self-compassion, it seems to me, where you stand up for your own needs and maybe still be the one who leaves. And it sort of feels like, what about the loyalty part then? So you can still be friends with that person, but maybe for your own self-compassion, you have to leave. And when you're an empath, you feel other people's feelings so strongly, how that fits in as well. I'm curious. I'll go into that when we go to this. I I didn't mean um, you're disloyal to me. uh, And what I mean by remaining loyal is you don't, let's say the other person's having an affair. You don't respond by saying, well, then I'll have one. It's more like I'm loyal to the commitment and now this rupture has happened. And when there's a rupture, we have two 
possibilities. We can repair the rupture and try to work things out. Or we can respect the rupture as an ending, our very first given. But in all of that, I remain loyal to the overall commitment until the relationship is over. That's what I mean by that kind of... Does that fit for you? Okay. Uh, There's somebody over here. A couple of questions. Um, First of all, when you say everything is animated by a drive to evolve, nature, um, it seems to me that adapting is one thing and the way you're using evolving in a sense of advancing is another and I question that premise Um, nature certainly adapts um, but whether that means that it it becomes um, more of all those um, things that you recommend is, is another question and, it all, and also the idea that some kind of providential deity is meeting out these challenges in order for us. I mean, that's terribly Christian and nice. Um, I also question it. The second question is why, if these givens are given across the board, would we be any different why assume that we're going to be the loving and loyal ones when everyone else isn't, and we know we're not always? Why would we be the ones called to be this way? Yeah, and how would that, how would that even be realistic and adaptive if this is not how things are? We're not all, I mean, the, the assumption here seems to be that we're the good guys and possibly the victims, and that um, the way to deal with that is by becoming saints. But this ain't true. Um, The way I see it is that our finding Buddhism has upgraded us so that we now look at the world differently from the way we perhaps did before. And we no longer operate on the basis of what other people do. We are moved by the Dharma itself, which is the greatest treasure ever given to humanity. And in this Dharma... We hear uh, statements like, "One, this is from the Dhammapada, one act of retaliation burns down a whole forest of merit. And so we see that even though other people might retaliate against us, we don't go that way. We operate on a different plane and it doesn't make us better than anybody else. It's just what we've become and what we love being. So there's no elitism in it. 
it just um, has um, captivated us so that now we want to be the enlightened, loving wisdom that is Buddha in the world. That's the Bodhisattva vow to um, bring to others what wonderful gifts we found for ourselves. Now, regarding the uh, power, when I say that there's some power at work, um, I'm not referring to the traditional view of a god, although it's perfectly okay to have such a view. But I'm thinking that even if you didn't have that traditional view, you could hold on to the sense of a mysterious something. And I describe it in the book as the something we know not what. That is always lovingly at work to make us more than we are yet and to make the world more than it is now. So there's a force of evolution that is bigger than any one of us, a higher power than our power, and it's at work in all these things in the nature around us and in us and it's geared in its arc to something more conscious and more loving than the way things are now. That's what I meant. And of course, this is me speaking just as David, and you have your own view, and I'm not trying to influence it. I'm just sharing uh, from my perspective. Um, But I want to go back to the person asking the question because you had more to your question. Yeah. Did it... What was there another part of your question I didn't answer? That was what? Is there another part of your question that I didn't? Okay. All right, but bring these kind of questions up because I'm very interested in how you see it. And I want to state things in a way that um, make room for what you bring to this. We're trying to widen something inside so that you can still be who you are, but perhaps have uh, a bigger perspective than before. Yeah. Uh, Two questions. Yes. One is really basic. Um, The urge to evolve... The what? The urge. The urge to evolve. evolve. Yeah, good um, way to put it. Will you, will you give me an idea of what evolve looks like or a couple of more words? Yeah. 
it looks like I want to do what widens my consciousness instead of contracts it. It looks like I want to expand my circle of love beyond my near and dear to those to whom I'm neutral, those with whom I have difficulties, and all beings, also called metta, the loving kindness practice. That's what I mean by evolving. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then part B. Um, If the most common problem is that we stay too long in what doesn't work. The most common problem I encountered. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right, right. Um, And yet, inherent in all of us, is that drive to evolve. Is that where life happens then, in the tension of opposites? Uh, No, that's not quite a tension of opposites. Unfortunately, this would be an example of a saying no to the full journey. Something in you is afraid of what might come next or something in you has been so seduced by the familiar Uh that you want to just keep it as it is for safety's sake. Uh And whenever we're acting for safety's sake, we're not on a journey. Uh Journey would be, I face the fear of what might come next. So it isn't really a combination of opposites, unfortunately. It's more like an interruption. Yeah. And I thought to myself, David, you interrupted 15 years. Here, 30 years. There, you don't have that much time left for interruptions. I can't do this anymore. I can't get into something now at this age and stay in it 15 years. So I have my new method, 30 days minimum. If it doesn't work for 30 days, take action. I'm not proposing that to you. You guys have a lot more time. So, But anyway, it's a possible way of looking at it. Did you have more to say? Uh, um, maybe the tension of opposites wasn't the right thing to say. Maybe I'm just sometimes pretty confused. But I'll go on to tension of opposites in other right, areas. Okay. Just confused to like when to stay and when to go because yeah. we really are trying to, you know, expand ourselves towards evolution and yet in some way there's almost a suffering in that but that's not the point. Then I get stuck. I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, stuckness is a better word for it. See, that's why stuckness Uh, cancels the concept of I'm just combining opposites because stuckness stops the movement. And um, I just think this is one of the dearest and most vulnerable features of our humanness that we stay put even though it hurts. And I'm so moved with compassion toward that. 
And by the way, I'm not that great a therapist, so I've never figured out how to release anybody from it. The only thing I've noticed, which I can gladly share with you, is that it has its own timing. And some morning you wake up and say, enough of this. Uh, Okay, let's have two more questions, then we're going to take our break. But after, we'll go back to the questions. Yes, uh, coming from a place of uh, loving kindness and compassion for a 40-year practice, my uh, ex-wife has lied and lied and lied about me causing estrangement of my three kids. And my son died in an accident two, two years ago. And uh, Sorry. I have uh, acceptance. I've come to acceptance over a long period. And I wonder how you deal with a delusional person who thinks what they think is truth. Okay, that's a bigger question than I can answer now, but I will go into it in the course of the day. And remind me if you have more about it. Okay, let's have one final question right here. Yes. And then after we'll come back. Yeah, thank you. Yes, I really do accept your givens. I think they're kind of the fundamental aspects of what life is like. Uh, However, I differ in seeing them as as goads to growth. I can see them as challenges to growth. Now, for instance, as a therapist, you know that actually as children we need we don't if we have just that only change if we don't have any sustained love trust we could grow up crazy and we won't be able to do that so if these aspects are all to life god help us because then life becomes chaos so there's a certain regularity predictability too in love and loyalty and trust that enables us to go forth to these challenges Mm, great. I like that. Well, thank you for bringing that in. And yes, that that's uh, an important addition. And I do welcome any things that you bring up that, you know, um, expand our topic and enrich it. All right. Well, let's take a short 10-minute break, and then we will return.
Um, someone may need the microphone who's going to ask a question. We had some questions left over, so let's start there, right here oh. with the blue shirt. Yeah. Or, okay. Is that okay? Yes. Oh, hi. Um, not really a question as much as a comment about, I was not surprised, I guess, that the most common issue you have found was people not staying or staying too long in a something that doesn't work. And I've certainly had my share of those. But I think for me, I find that it's more difficult to stay long enough to, to uh, I, guess, I think I have some ADD maybe, and I want to <laughs> move on to something else pretty quickly if oh, it doesn't uh -huh. work right away. And I'm, all five of those seem to be the things that want to, move me along instead yep. of staying and seeing and doing the work to see if it does work, in fact. Yes. Thank you for reminding us of that. That's a nice alternative right behind him. Um, and, of course, he's also bringing up the, you know, Goldilocks perspective that you're going to find things in life that are too much or too little and you're looking for the just right. And sometimes it takes time to go from one to the other. But I do have a humorous little comment about Goldilocks um, that occurred to me a couple of months ago. I thought to myself, she tried the first porridge and she said it was too hot. Then she tried the second one, said it was too cold. Then she tried the third one and f realized it was just right. And I thought, oh, she moved from one to the other in a matter of seconds. But we take years and years. We find out early this is too hot. And then we wait 15 years before we go to the <laughs> next bowl of porridge. Anyway, we're, we're being very kind to ourselves. We're, we're looking at the mystery of being human. We're wondering about timing and what is most clear is that timing has a life all its own. When you're ready to do something, you do it. Hurry or delay, as Winnicott says, is interference. So it's kind of a matter of, it's not just a matter of taking an action. Um, something internally has to assent to the change. And then when that all comes together, then you're ready to make some kind of a move. The move could be repair the rupture, make this better, or move on because this no longer works. Yeah. I'm uh, <clears throat> really curious as to why you said you were a bad therapist. No, I mean, I, I don't have oh, you the did. skill yeah, to... One of the things that you were like, oh, I'm not a good therapist. I was like, what did you mean by that? Well, I'm not good enough to spring you out of something that isn't working. Because I'm trusting that there's a timing that's beyond both of us. And so I couldn't 
promise that I could get you to move um, faster. But I am thinking of this quote from Shakespeare. A man must endure his coming hence, even as his going hither. The readiness is all. So he's saying, it has to be okay with us that something begins and equally okay that something ends. But in order to do that, you have to be ready. And that readiness is not fully in our control, nor can um, therapy, no matter how good it is, make you ready when the timing has not clicked in. I hope what I'm saying is makes sense. It might be superstition, but so far it makes sense to me. But anyway, that's what I meant. It's kind of said in a humorous way. Uh, You had a question? Right here. Um, I think I'm in. Uh, I think I'm at the stage where I've had enough, and I really, true, tr- I really try to practice this as sincerely as I can. These five things, givens. However, right now at a, at a new job, I'm having such difficulty, and I'm going to move on because it's not the company where I could practice my integrity. So. Uh, but, but I'm doubting myself so much. And, and I think people look at me and say, oh gosh, she's so arrogant. I'm assuming. I don't know what they're thinking. Uh, <laughs> and I'm, have, uh, I'm, so, I'm doubting myself so much that I had to go to a, a therapist to discuss these things. So any, you know, throughout the day, any suggestions or anything to, to, to keep up my my good attitude and perspective because I've been coming here for 15 years and I believe in, in, in Buddhism and what they teach. So, Well, uh, I like how you're handling it and it seems like you're doing all the things that will move you along. You don't seem like you're going to be uh, stuck for very long. It seems like you're already wanting to move on and you're turning to the resources that could help you namely therapy and anything else you're doing, including coming here. So you can just trust that you'll know when the time is right. I'm a believer in that. You know, it's, it's I, and I'm trying to trust, but it's, I have a new job opportunity, but of course it's not perfect. But nothing ever is, so I don't know when to to yes. stop looking. Like when is? I mean, I, I'm not quite sure. I should have that as one of the givens. <laughs> nothing, nothing is ever perfect. So, okay. Thank you. Thank you. Things are perfect momentarily, but just for something to be perfect in an ongoing way. That is possible. I'll give an example. Um, But 
for most of us, it's difficult to maintain, as Shakespeare says, it holds in perfection but a moment. The, the obvious example of ongoing perfection would be like, you know, Mozart. That's just perfect and will be throughout the centuries. That's what makes it a classic. But uh, ordinarily, things go in and out of perfection. Perfect is just the Latin word for fully done. Uh, Somebody else had a question? Okay, good. So let's take a look at our first given, which is uh, the things change and end. I just want to start with a short reading. Um, So now I'm on page six of our book, Five True Things. Every reality meets us with impermanence. This is hard for us to take because we want permanence in life and in relationships. We want stability, things remaining as they are, reliable come-back-tos. Or another way of saying it is, we've made stability and permanence synonyms. We think that feeling stabilized assures us of permanence, but it doesn't work that way. You could be, you could be as stable as you can be and things will still be changing all around you. And as someone said during the break, the only person you can change is yourself. So here are some examples of what we want and expect to remain the same. The form of love that others show us, both in family and relationship. The form of love others will accept from us, especially our children. The life, as I read these, I'm thinking of the things in my own life that led me to write them. But anyway. The loyalty of family and friends, the importance of our job, our importance at our job, our financial security, our physical health, our talents, strengths, nimbleness, skills, and abilities, our sexual interest and prowess, our interest level and hobbies, the ground under our feet, earthquake free. (laughs) That one's not going to happen. Yet one by one, each of these will change or end. Only a patient and amused yes to each of these will plant our feet in reality. When we accept all changes with uncomplaining, with an uncomplaining shrug, our life is happier. Then we are on board the good ship real life, not as stowaways but as captains. So, um, this first one is just so obvious, we don't need to spend a lot of time on it. Uh, Just one look in the mirror in the morning shows you things change. (laughs) 
and ends. But the part I want to go into is what to do when things change and end. I can fight it tooth and nail and say it shouldn't change and end. I can blame the people around me for changing. For instance, relationships, um, study done of California couples showed that they went through three phases, three basic phases. I think there were actually five, but I'm going to use the three main ones. Begins with that chemical reaction between the two people that institutes the romance. We all know what that's like. Wonderful. So the first phase that the couples went through was romance. Just by using the word phase, I've already talked about change and end. Second phase was conflict. And the third phase was one of two. You either work through the conflict and make the commitment to handle the conflicts that come up in the course of all human lives and still love each other or separate. And obviously uh, more marriages end in divorce than in commitment. So the time to get married, by the way, is here, when you reach the commitment phase. Our parents married in the romance phase. Then conflict. <laughs> and I mean, you, you, you really want to wait until you're, you're in something that is assuredly committed and you know you can work things out, and you know you keep agreements. Um, but in any case, relationships go through phases, they change, things come to an end. You can revisit the romance here and there, no problem. You can uh, learn nonviolent communication skills so that you can handle the conflicts that are givens. And when you do so, then you have a real commitment. What is a real commitment? A series, I'll say a trustworthy, a trustworthy series of kept agreements and handled obstacles. So when you have a trustworthy series, with someone of uh, keeping his or her word or handling obstacles as they come along rather than running away from them, then you have a commitment. Commitment is not the wedding ring. Or what you said in the wedding ceremony. Commitment is this. But in any case things change and end. Now, if you go to blame, well, everything's messed up now because you are wrong. It misses the whole point of the given of change. 
or another way of saying it is, blame is a way to avoid the real response to changes and endings, the one that's built into all of us called grieving. And everyone knows how to do it because our body-mind is oriented to handle the givens of life. And since the central given is impermanence, also a Buddhist teaching, then grief is the, is the way that we would process changes and endings. How is this grief done? Well, we also know this just naturally. We notice that when we grieve, we mostly feel sad. Sad that something has changed or ended. We also notice, if we look carefully and if we're not afraid of our own anger, that we're angry that something has changed or ended. Perfectly normal. Anger is defined in the dictionary as distress about a perceived injustice. This isn't right. This shouldn't have happened. So you feel like it was unfair. That's the angry part. That's what makes you angry. And then third is the fear that a big hole is opened up in your life and it'll never be filled in a satisfactory way. With her gone, there's nothing left. With him gone, it'll never be the same. Well, it is true that with him gone, they'll never be the same. But it isn't true that with her gone, there's nothing left. So when I let myself have these feelings, and by the way, timing, they will come up on their own. You don't have to make them happen. Don't try to be sad. Don't try to be angry don't, and so forth. You'll just notice the feelings come up. And when they do, you are granting them hospitality. You are saying, okay, let it happen. I'm the lightning rod. Let that angry feeling go right through me and go to ground. We're sending all our processed feelings back to the earth. Mother Earth will transform them into something better for everyone. So I'm letting that happen, letting that go through. And my little method is, I just do like a freeze frame. So I'm walking across the floor and I suddenly feel a stroke of sadness because of something that's ended or changed. I just stop and let myself feel it. Let it go through top to bottom. Let it go out into the ground. And only when that has happened, then I take my deep breath and take another step. But that's just my little method. So you're letting yourself have the feelings which will come back over and over again since all losses occur at various levels. She's gone doesn't just mean she doesn't live here anymore. She's gone also means 
Oh, now I don't have anybody to confide in. Oh, now I don't have anybody to go on vacations with. Oh, now I don't have anybody to have sex with. Oh, etc., etc. So you keep finding various levels and the feelings go to all these levels. So the first part is feeling. This leads to the second part, which is letting go. I guess I'm letting go of this because it's gone. And the proper etiquette when something is gone is to let it go. This whole course is on nothing but um, logical response to various imponderables, one of which is endings. And fortunately, we were uh, made with the ability to grieve. Not only we, all the mammals grieve. And uh, it's a period in which you kind of pull back from other things and other people, as we've all noticed. And that's healthy. It could even go into some depression. That's temporary and also healthy because your body is making sure that you focus on the grief so that you can get through it. That's an example of how the makeup of the body is endowed with an urge to evolution because it wants you to get healthier. So it's going to put you into that depression so that you can stay with this just long enough to get through it and you can get on with your life journey. Good example of the optimism of evolution. That leads to a letting go. And then the third is, of course, going on with the whole now in my life, H-O-L-E. And I'm not immediately trying to fill it, but when something else comes along, I will open myself to it. Now, let's work backwards. If I'm afraid of going on, then I won't let go. And instead of doing this, feeling sad, angry, and afraid, I will try to avoid these feelings, stuff them, dissociate, blame somebody. I will uh, prevent the process from evolving. This would be a very dangerous thing to do to your body-mind, but some of us go this way. Why go this way? Because of the fear of going on. Fear of going on also answers the question, why do we stay too long in something that doesn't work? Fear of going on. How ironic. Fear of going on in someone whose basic archetype is the hero's journey. We all have the same archetype inside. It's to go. 
is not to stay stuck. There isn't one person in this room who was born in this room. So everybody went. (laughs) And here you are. And there's not one person in here who's going to stay in this room for the rest of his or her life. You'll all be going. So, (laughs) Um, you show over and over again that you were meant to go. We're not like oak trees, we're like cars. So, uh, questions about this part? I should have expected this. That's the kind of statement you would make. Oh, something has changed, but I should have expected this because everything does change. You'll think back to this workshop and you'll say, wait a minute. David promised that everything would change. So I want to just go along with it. David. Hi, Kirk. What? Hi, good afternoon. What is the... Uh, foundation of the fear of going on then is that you're back in the loop of facing the givens one more time to experience the pain one more time that's a good question why would we not want to go on I think it's because of the seduction of the familiar In other words, safety. Safety is not the mindset of the hero. Hero, male or female, goes directly toward the danger. Dorothy, follow the yellow brick road. Don't stay in the house that just crashed from Kansas. Don't go back in the house and stay there. She didn't do that. She went toward the danger. That yellow brick road eventually leads to the castle of the wicked witch. That's where she was headed, and it was okay with her. That's the mindset of heroism to which we're all called. It's not just a journey, it's an heroic journey. What is a hero? One who has lived through pain, gained from it, brought what he or she gained to others, and acknowledged that all the daring do was not entirely from me, but from assisting forces around me. That's the hero. Lived through pain, gained by it. Bodhisattva vow, shared it with others. And acknowledged, it wasn't just me. I got help from many different sources, both material and spiritual. So that would be our calling. 
But there is something about the familiar that feels safe. And a devil that I know is better than the devil that I don't know, that kind of perspective is going to uh, prevent us from going. Can you imagine what a horrible fate that would be? That you were meant to go and you stayed. Reminds me of Romeo just before he committed suicide. Here will I set up my everlasting rest, never from this palace of dim night to depart again. He said that in a tomb. So Shakespeare's making the connection. Tomb, death, stay. Stay put is death. Here will I set up my everlasting rest, endless. I won't be going. Um, Did I have some kind of an answer in what I just said? (laughs) Or did you have more? Do you have a different... Was that... It's basically the safety of staying put. Yes. Um, I thought that was a beautiful answer. It On the simpler side, the other side of that thought that came to my mind was seeing pain, just that old phrase, growing pains. That it, that just, it's a positive aspect of pain. And if you can see that as a a positive feeling, Mm. you know, then you don't have to flee to manage the risk of that pain. You don't see it as risk. You see it as reward. Yes. I'll say one more thing about the staying put because it reminded me of a poem by Emily Dickinson in which she describes this very well. There's also uh, the sense that it's hopeless to try to do anything else. A great hope fell. You heard no noise. The ruin was within. Oh, cunning wreck that told no tale and let no witness in. A not admitting of the wound until it grew so wide that all my life had entered it and there was room beside. So the feeling that, you know, the hope is gone and there's this big wound and I'm not going to tell anybody about it. And the more I keep it to myself, the wider it's getting. And now it has swallowed up my whole life. Imagine being in that situation. She's showing us the, the, the far extreme of the staying stuck. Staying stuck is defiance of Buddha's central teaching in impermanence. Because it's saying, I'll keep it the same, no matter what Buddha said. 
You had a question. Actually, it's not as much. It's more of a statement than a question. Yeah. Um, might be going in a little bit of a tangent, but I, um, my own experience has been that I, you know, I want to not be stuck, right? Yes. And there are some areas where I find, well, I can do a piece of work and I can move beyond being stuck. But I feel like I need to say that it's really important that we don't beat ourselves up about it because you can really work hard and still there are areas that are intransigent. And the thing that I've found is that um, in, there's a lot of, been a lot of development in trauma work over the last 20 or so years. Yeah. And sometimes it is that the fear is so big in your nervous system yes. that you cannot unravel it by yourself. You cannot right. unravel it just by doing the normal things that you would think you could do. Absolutely. So that, so that part of the journey, <clears throat> part of the journey may have to be finding someone who can help you unravel it in a way that's safe. And now, even then it may take quite a while. Right. And that's titrated in a way that you can actually accomplish it. Yes. I'm so glad you brought that up. And that keeps reminding us of the mysterious nature of our whole topic. That this is not like other self-help topics where, you know, well, here's how you deal with this. And here's the method for that. All of what we're saying has other elements such as mysterious timing, such as uh, forces that seem to um, push us or stop us. And we're, uh, we're just noticing all this and we're navigating our way through it. Uh, there's one more question back here. Sort of meditating on your comment about Dorothy, and the thing that's sticking with me is that she was the whole time trying to get back home, though. Not to the house, but to Kansas. And so, if you think about grief, if you're using her as a parable for moving through grief, what does it mean that we're all trying to get back to before the loss? Well, um, uh, one of the features of the hero's story is that there's a stated goal of the hero, a purpose that he or she has. And then there's the transcendent goal, the bigger goal, that the universe has set. So let me give an example. I'll give two examples, Dorothy and Robin Hood. So Dorothy's goal is get back home to Kansas. But that's not the... That's not the goal that uh, the universe wants her. That's, that's small potatoes compared to her real goal. When she finds a way to go back to Kansas with the, you know, the balloon and the wizard is going to take her back, um, she jumps out of the balloon. That little dog, it's often an animal who brings us to the higher plane. The little dog jumped off the balloon and obviously she's not going to leave without him. 
So she jumps out. The balloon takes off. Now she's stuck. Then she says, oh, but, but I'll never get back to Kansas now. And the scarecrow says, well, you can stay here with us, Dorothy. We love you, which they do. But uh, she says, okay to that. But then he sees the good witch, that's the divine feminine, coming toward them. And he says, here's someone who can help us. And when the witch arrives, uh, she says, you know, she sees the situation. Dorothy wants to go home. And she says, but you've had the power all along. That's the real goal. You have power. You thought you had no power in Kansas. You had to run away. The dog was in danger. But now, and then you thought you had to get back home. You, you got it all wrong. The real thing that you're looking for is your own power. You don't need any balloon. All you have to do is click your feet together and say there's no place like home and you'll get there. So that's her real goal. And this is true in every hero story. There's the stated goal of the hero, which is way too small, and the big goal of the universe. So with Robin Hood, the goal is take from the rich and give to the poor. That's his stated goal. But the real goal that the universe wants him to fulfill is find a wonderful partner, restore the king to his throne, and bring justice to the kingdom. That's much bigger than feed the poor. And if you look at all your stories, you'll see that um, those two options. So it's never just... um, the minimal. And that would be true in our own life too. Your counselor in high school said, we want you to go to a good college so you'll be able to get a good job and then settle down and eventually you'll be able to retire and you'll have a lot to be proud of. Well, that's the stated public school goal of your life. And it's not bad, but it's not enough. We were meant for bigger things. How do we know we were meant for bigger things? We were given the kind of imagination that could imagine them. Okay, so uh, did I have any other questions on that? Oh, yeah, right here. These questions are helping us really uh, expand the whole topic. So thank you so much for being here. You're one of my very, very, very favorites. I love how you hold space in all of your wisdom. Well, aren't you kind? Thank you. So um, a a comment and then a question. Yeah. Um, I'm working on feeling my feelings, and it's not easy. (laughs) No. And um, 
there's um, this man, Jeff Foster, and one thing that he said, he has this beautiful poetry, and he said, when you're depressed, you need depressed. That's where the word came from. And that just hit me so hard, so I've been resting. And, you know, I, it's just hard to feel that, because I, I just want to move forward. <laughs> and what this other gentleman over here said about growing pains, you know, that helped me just to... Um, you know, feel all my feelings, but label them as growing pains because it gets hard to hold, really, honestly. Um, and then my question is, so people who blame and, refu and refuse to go through grieving and put it all on you, is that the birth of a toxic person who you then should avoid this type? I mean, is that how a toxic people are born, people who blame and don't want to feel their feelings? Well, we don't want to judge others, but we do want to f notice when things become toxic that we need to take some kind of action. I was um, talking to a couple this week, and um, they are separating. They're definite about separating, but they still live under the same roof. And um, I said, you know, it's going to be normal that some resentments that you've had over the years might come up, but it would be good to talk about them in here rather than, you know, start blaming each other. And I made a distinction. I said, <clears throat> when you choose to separate you are moving from transaction to interaction. There are no more transactions. You did this to me and you should pay for it. I did that to you. You did this. I did that. Those are transactions. You did this and you should pay for it. Now it's interaction. We are coming into a new phase of how we're going to be together. We want to preserve the possibility of an ongoing friendship. So let's make a plan not to bring up old stuff. If it's important to bring it up, bring it up with somebody that you can process it with. It doesn't have to be a therapist. It can be a friend, whoever. But let's change the style. No more transaction, no, only interaction. Does this make sense to everybody? You get the concept? Um, I found this uh, a helpful way of making the distinction, especially when it's going to be toxic to bring something up. Because there are certain points in the relationship in which it's impossible to bring something up without it being painful for everybody. And that's where you need help. How do I bring this up in a way that's not toxic? Toxic is Latin word for poison. We don't want that. Other, was there one more comment? Or one more question? Okay, let's just have one more and then we're going to move toward our break. 
And it only talks about one given, so I have four for this afternoon. So, uh, I'm I'm going back to a comment you made before our last break, which was you have a 30-day rule about knowing whether you should stay or whether you should go. Could you expand on that? Yeah, very simple. If it doesn't work for 30 days straight, that means it doesn't work. And you can either stay in it while it continues not to work, or you can get some help from therapy to see if it can work. Instead of our other approach that we used in the 60s and 70s, 17 years, 22 years, 31 years. Uh, okay, so you're, before you take action. So you're you're saying basically, if a relationship isn't going to work, one may be able to know that after 30 days. No, it's 30 days of not working. Oh, 30 days of not yeah, working. Yeah, it doesn't work ah. for 30 days. Okay. I've asked this of some couples, and it's very interesting. I mean, they're kind of shocked by the question. I say, have you had 30 days straight of happiness? And they kind of scrunch up. I say, okay, that's what we're looking for. I mean, you know, it seems seems like not that much to ask to have, 30 days straight of happiness if it's a truly working relationship. So if we don't have that, if we have conflict, 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 and it's never resolved, then um, we don't really have enough going for us to say it can work. Does this seem too harsh or too demanding? Unrealistic, okay. What I'm struggling with is the trying to make it work because it's probably on me. Could we get the Oh yeah. Um what I am struggling with this concept of 30 days or whatever time you take yeah is changes are on me so um, um <laughs> no changes aren't on you changes are on both of you it's not for you you have to change it's it's always both of us have something to look at that's called addressing the problem, processing it. <clears throat> that's exploring the feelings that go with it and then resolving it, which is making a new plan or a new agreement to do things differently so that it can work. But it's never just one person. Even if the other person is a... Is a total alcoholic it's still 
a family system and has to be treated that way. And both people are involved. <clears throat> so it's never just me <clears throat> or just you. Makes sense to everybody. Does that answer what you... I need to sit with <clears throat> it's, it's time for me to sit with that. Okay, good. Yes, because what I'm sharing is um, what I've learned over the years. And uh, I welcome your um, questioning and, you know, maybe looking at it differently, even showing that my approach isn't right. Uh, I, I'm very open to that. So please don't ever hesitate to bring things like this up. But it's also true that people eat lunch. <laughs> that is another given. So we will take our break shortly and we will, I'll be up here for a few minutes. And um, yeah, we're going to come back at two and we're going to, uh, I'll be here at a quarter of two to sign any books. But I'm here for a few minutes now if you have any other questions. David, it's so nice to see you. So nice to see you. I'm glad you're here. Quick question. I'm still situated, you know, as a man. Phases of like, okay, like now yeah. she's grieving. Yeah. She's not, she's not, she's not, she's not, she's not. <laughs>
is pretty intense, like, you know, like hearing that.
Uh, no, I'll keep, oh, I'll keep it on for the time being. Or maybe I should take it off. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, just a reminder that if you're here for CEU uh, credits, you need to sign again on the way out. Also, I wanted to share one thing that came up during lunch, and then we'll open it up for the leftover questions. Um, on the quandary, why would we stay in something that's painful and believe we just can't go? And of course, if our childhood was painful, we certainly couldn't go. So it could be that that was the beginning of believing that you just have to stay. And then the purpose of life becomes enduring rather than enjoying. Endure in Latin means hard. So you're, when you endure, you're hardening yourself and staying in something that's hard. And many of us were taught that that is a useful purpose of life, to endure whatever pain it brings, rather than settling only for happiness. So we're just keeping that in mind, and it's yet another indicator of um, the vulnerability 
of our humanness. A touching vulnerability. So any leftover questions? Okay, so we can go on to... Oh, somebody asked about the poem at the beginning, and it's from the Rubaiyat, R-U-B-A-I-Y-A-T, of Omar Khayyam. It's a Victorian translation of a Muslim poem. Ah, love, if you and I could but conspire to change this sorry scheme of things entire, would we not shatter it to bits and mold it nearer to the heart's desire? So you could say that's a fun wish. So we're going on to how things don't go according to plan. And um, I'll just read the one paragraph from page 24 of our book. We make plans expecting to be in control of what will happen. Perhaps we fear natural happenings, things just turning out contrary to our wishes. We are challenged because life has a mind of its own. We're challenged to let go of having things come out our way. This is about control. We may act with precision and self-discipline, expecting the world to follow suit and grant us a reward. So it reminds us that that word yes that I mentioned before, the only attitude that fits things that cannot be changed. What else could one say? If it can't be changed, you have to just accept it. But the opposite of yes is not no. The opposite of yes is control. If you stop to think of it, every time you're, and I certainly notice this in my own life, that every time we're trying to be in control, we're saying, we're, we're canceling some yes to openness. So it's yes to what this predicament will bring. We don't want that. We don't want yes to what this predicament will bring, which would be the equivalent of being open. And from that openness would be a trust. I'll get back to that. But instead, we want to be in control of how it's going to come out and be sure it comes out our way. Now, the trust element is uh, somehow believing that if it's unfolding in this way, it must be offering me an opportunity for practice. What practice, as we said before? how I can be mindful, how I can hold this as a here and now experience without judgment or the need to control or change it. And secondly, how does this help me love more? My two purposes. How can I remain conscious here and now without judgment? How can I love myself and others? From that point of view, the predicament is a gift. 
because it's presenting us with the possibility of advancing in our spiritual practice, moving along on the spiritual journey. So plans are certainly reasonable and we can't live our lives without making uh, plans that seem appropriate to our achievement of our goals. But we're always keeping in mind that something could come along that might mess it up. That is not supposed to destabilize us so that we fall apart. That just presents us with an alternative. And now what's my plan B? It's okay to say that, of course, but you could also um, pay attention to how things are working differently and ask yourself, is there a personal message in this to me about how to upgrade my practice? Any questions about this part? It's fairly straightforward. We have a question in the back. Hi. So Hi. on this chart, where is the place for no or, or healthy boundaries? Uh, you mean regarding plans or just in general? Well, just, yeah, I guess in general. I mean, the no is just crossed out. So we're, you know, I, I guess I wonder where, how it maps in. Um, okay. Yes, let me respond to that because we don't want to give the wrong impression. Remember at the beginning, we uh, reminded ourselves of the seeking the serenity that comes from accepting with a yes that which can't be changed. But it's always going to be balanced with the courage to change what can be changed. So here's where there might be a no. And here's where there is always a yes. And then the third part is to have the wisdom to know the difference. That's discernment. And discernment comes from our own inner wisdom and from access to our support system, other people, sponsors, friends, therapists. And thirdly, from a power of wisdom in the universe that reaches to us, especially in nature. Uh, Shakespeare, one touch of nature makes the whole world kin. So you, you know, you're looking at the things in nature and you're noticing 
They go through seasons, they change, but they're always growing. That's certainly a source of wisdom. Does that respond to other questions about this? It's fairly straightforward. Hold it one sec. Do we have the microphone? Oh, courage to change the things you can. You're In that one, you might be saying no to something. In other words, it's always fine to say yes and it's always fine to say no. But in our topic, we're looking at the things that you can't say no to. You can't say no, there won't be change. It would be unreasonable because everything is continually in flux. But what you can say is, I will learn to ride the waves of change so that I come through them as part of my overall journey through life. One that has as its purpose, not only my own happiness, but sharing that with others. And there's something about this attitude of yes that helps. I have the little uh, affirmation in the book by Dag Hammarskjöld um, from the 1950s. He's in the United Nations. And uh, he says, for all that has been, thanks. For all that will be, yes. Summarizes pretty well. Seems like a healthy approach. Okay, so let's take a look at the next one which is, we'll go to life is not always fair. Now we're on chapter three, which begins on 33. And I'll start with uh, just a paragraph. First of all, I have the quote by famous um, scientist of religion, Eliad. He says, the law of life lives in him, him, the hero. The law of life lives in the hero with his unreserved consent. I am unreservedly consenting to the five givens and all the givens of my life with one multicolored unconditional yes. And I'm on 33. Life is not always fair, and neither are people, ourselves included. Sometimes we are taken advantage of. Sometimes we do all the right things and wind up losing. Sometimes we act cautiously and are nonetheless hurt. Others may be generous to us, and yet we take advantage of their kindness or we may act with good intentions toward others and yet our efforts go unappreciated or are misinterpreted. This third given challenges our ability 
to grieve for the losses associated with unfairness. It's our psychological work. It also challenges us not to retaliate against those who have hurt us. This is our spiritual practice. Both these together equal an unconditional yes to the unalterable life law that things are not always fair. You win some, you lose some. So if my orientation is I can absolutely not be taken advantage of, I will not endure that. I will get back at you if you take advantage of me. If that's your style, that's a no to you win some, you lose some. If you can't abide, I did the right thing and wound up losing. That's just not in keeping with uh, the way things are set up here. Here in this world. Because you sometimes do the right things and you do lose. So we're not victimizing ourselves and we're not allowing ourselves to uh, stay in a victimized state, but at times we are victimized by unfairness. So we're going to have to have a practice or a plan to deal with it. That's our topic. So let's say something happens to you and you have your handout about this. Uh, Somebody's unfair to you. Um, Somebody hates you. Somebody hurts you. Somebody cheats you, etc. So our practice from psychology, we get this from our assertiveness training, is first of all, we're going to speak up, we're going to say ouch to the person directly who hurt us in any way or who was unfair to us. We're going to speak up. We're going to try to redress the wrong. We're going to try to get things to work out evenly, fairly, no problem. We're going to ask for amends. All of this is part of healthy assertiveness. But when this doesn't work, when the one who hurt us just wants to go on hurting us or refuses to make amends or even mocks our ouch, now we're going to something different from just psychology. We're going to something spiritual. And we're going to say, okay, I did what I could do and it hasn't worked. Obviously, if this is something legal, you would then bring in a lawyer and go to court and so forth. So I'm not going into that part. But if, if, if this happens, that you try to 
get an amends and you don't get it, the, the spiritual practice is to let go of the impulse to retaliate. To get back at someone. And to instead include this person in your loving kindness practice. That's what Buddhism offers in a case like this. And it'll be up to you as to whether you want to do this. But uh, I believe it's um, very empowering. And I myself have been trying never knowingly to retaliate, which for an Italian person is an enormous project. Because for us, revenge is a sacrament. (laughs) So, anyway, you can, you know, have this as an option. And um, it's it's the non-retaliation is the way of saying yes in this instance. Yes to what? Yes to the fact that sometimes things are unfair. Sometimes I do get cheated. Sometimes I am hurt. And there's just nothing I can do about it. Except stay away from it in the future, of course. Questions? If you don't have an urge to retaliate, it doesn't come up, like for me, an urge to retaliate or, or hurt back, um, would you consider creating a thinner relationship with that person who keeps hurting you over and over? Would you consider that re- retaliation or not? If you just create a no. thinner relationship and spend less no, time... No, you're redesigning that. the relationship okay. to fit the circumstance. And that's acceptable. But why would you want to continue at all? Well, sometimes it's not an option to completely cut people off. You mean like a family member? Something like yeah. that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you just have a light... Lighter relationship. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Thanks. Thank you. Other ideas? Oh, over here... Kirk, right here. Thank you. Thank you. Um, could you address for a moment amends? And um, when I understand that maybe there are conditions when you can ask for amends that are appropriate and conditions under which someone can't make amends to you that might be appropriate. If you could just talk about that for a moment. Do you have an example? Um, yes, let's uh, say that <clears throat> someone else has harmed someone you care about, and um, let's take a let's take a cheating. All right, man cheats on wife with other woman. Uh, as the wife is harmed by both the man's action and the woman's action, 
man makes amends to wife, man asks woman to make amends to wife. Can't be done, necessarily. So you would feel like, of course, that it was unfair. Yes, it's unfair because it feels like unfairness because you both harmed the wife and it appears that one of you is accepting accountability and trying to make amends and the other is not and won't contribute in any way to resolution. So that goes to I don't retaliate. I do put this person into my loving-kindness practice, and I let it go. I know it's hard to do, but the alternative takes us over to the primitive dimension. But first, let's look at your question, what does it mean to make amends? It's, it's basically doing what you can to make up for what you did. And um, you only do this when to do so would not be of of harm to the other or to yourself. Um, It would include taking responsibility. So I'm admitting that I am responsible or accountable And I am apologizing. And I'm making an agreement not to do this again. So all of that would be what's meant by a man. Steve, do you have anything to add? Okay. Pardon? Yeah, the ultimate purpose is to create a change in the way you relate. And it may not be appropriate for the third party to make amends unless they're prepared to make a change. Yes. Right? can only yeah. be done when you're ready to do it. So Again, that timing. To, to make, uh, try and make amends without willing to change is a lack of sincerity. Or it could be that the time isn't the time hasn't come. Yes, they're not ready. But yeah, they're not ready. They don't have that level of consciousness yet, mm-hmm. and you see that in in like an AA program, which is based entirely on respect for timing and grace. Grace, the gift dimension of life, something that kicks in to help us when our willpower has shown itself to be inadequate or even dangerous. So there's always a lot more to all of this, a spiritual dimension that has depth and that is mysterious to us poor mortals. Okay, Uh, right here in front of me, yeah. So I may have written this down incorrectly in my notes, but letting go of the impulse to retaliate, I'm good with that, but include the person in your loving kindness practice. What does that look like, or did I miss? Uh, No, you didn't miss. Um, The loving kindness practice is that you ask for, you, you aspire 
to happiness and well-being and peace of mind and liberation for yourself. If you were to think of yourself as living in the center of some concentric circles, so this is I in the center circle, and around me are the people that I love. Those are my near and dear, and I love them too. Now what Buddhism proposes is always the more, more than what you ordinarily would do. Ordinarily, we would love ourselves and our family and friends. But look, Buddhism is saying, no, you're also capable of loving those neutral people that you see every day, neighbors and so forth. You can ask, you can want their happiness too. And there are people around you that you don't like at all or who dislike you. You can show this feel a, a love for them too. You're not going to show the love in the same way to one you dislike as the way you're going to show it to your son or daughter. But you still are holding that love for them inside you. That's called loving kindness practice. And finally, it will include all beings. So now I'm in the center circle and I have one, one, two, three, four concentric circles around and I am beaming out this love to all of them equally while showing it differently. And you could do this on a daily basis. You could, as part of your sitting, you could um, say these affirmations inside your mind. And I do explain the, this whole thing in our book. Um, may I be happy. May those I love be happy. May those to whom I'm neutral, so forth. Yeah. Um, is that to you? And you can even name people, especially the, when you get to the difficulty one, you can name the people you're in conflict right here and now. It's quite a challenge. Is that teetering on forgiveness? It's not forgiveness in the sense of excusing, but it is forgiveness in the deeper sense of letting go of blame, resentment, and the need to retaliate. That's the deeper meaning of forgiveness. It's not exculpation. Culpa in Latin means fault. It's not removing fault. It's no longer paying attention to faults because something has happened inside you that no longer holds on to blame and judgment. Forgiveness, letting go of blame, resentment, and the will to retaliate or ill will in general. Okay, but we had one more person back here and then you. Did we have one person? Yeah. No, over the, over here on the left. Yeah. Do you want to raise your hand? No, it was answered. Oh, it was answered. Okay. Then this person right here. Okay, first Marilyn and then you. Well, I, I Go ahead. wanted to... 
suggest the possibility of an artistic response to the impulse for revenge or retaliation so that it could be expressed in, in writing what you would what one part of oneself would like to do but chooses not to or express it in movement or poetry or um, painting so that there's there's not a in a sense a psychological spiritual bypassing of the the impulse <laughs> mm. to to get back at yes just as long as there's that differentiation of course between expressing what the the shadow side <laughs> would like to do and then that might help be, uh, one be more um uh, in a sense honest or uh, having taken care of the other parts of oneself yes thank you marilyn very good suggestion okay um yeah so you talked about um you know when we're hurt the sort of assertive side you know saying ouch and seeking for redress and amends. And you categorize that as like our psychological work. And then you said, when that doesn't work to, you know, practice letting go of the impulse to retaliate and categorizing that as spiritual. And so I was just yes. wondering. Yes, because psychology doesn't give us a motive to let go of retaliation. It seems like it's totally normal. Somebody hits you, hit him back. You would have to have a spiritual conversion to move out of that original primitive uh, orientation that's inside all of us going all the way back to our cave person roots when retaliation was totally necessary for survival. If village one knows that village two will retaliate, they will not attack. If village one hears that village two has a um, wonderful, wise master who has taught them not to retaliate, they're done for. (laughs) (laughs) But now we have many more options. So we we have found ways to survive without having to retaliate. Um, And one one other question I had was on the issue of amends. So... Like when you make amends with someone, there may still be an aspect of the wrong that can never be replaced, or it's like indelible. You know, like if someone they killed someone, you can't bring them back to life, or if you cause some harm, you know, you can't remove the memory of that pain. So I guess I was just wondering, like, what do you do with that difference that of of the aspect of amends that still fails to replace, you know, what was lost? Or the the fact that it's lost is the unfairness. So that is what we're working on uh, saying yes to. Yes, in the sense of accepting it as a fact without having to get back at anybody for causing the fact. But the second part, get back at those who caused the problem, can only happen when something has changed in us so that we no longer go to our set point as humans, which is revenge. Thank you. Thank you. So in the beginning of Hamlet, when he 
sees his father's ghosts and his father said, uh, people think uh, I died from a disease, but that's not the case. Your uncle murdered me. And it's up to you to avenge this foul crime. And nobody in the audience thought then or now that that was a strange request. Just seems like, oh, okay. I need to kill the one who killed my father. But the play opens up all kinds of other questions. Makes us wonder about that choice. So you would have to ask yourself, have I wondered about retaliation? Have I ever thought that it's not really um, the way to act? It's something to expunge from my set of protocols of how I'm going to treat people. And of course, it's up to you. I was... um, giving a talk here a few years ago and I guess the topic was relationships and there were many young couples in the audience and uh, I didn't plan to say this but I was on the topic of retaliation and I didn't plan this but I said what if tomorrow morning when you get up and you're sitting across from each other at the breakfast table, you say to your partner, whether or not your partner will respond in kind, just you say, I've made my decision. From now on, no matter what you do to me, I will never retaliate. I will say, ouch, I will make a big stink about it, I will have a big discussion. I will get angry, but I will never, from here on in, get back at you. And if the other person says, oh, okay, well, I will do that too. That will be wonderful. But if the other person doesn't say that, then you know he or she will retaliate and you're just accepting that as part of the relationship and seeing what that feels like. Of course, everybody sat there silently. (laughs) And I thought, oh dear, I think I put them on the spot. Because of course, if tomorrow morning they don't say this, (laughs) then the implicit bargain between them is we're just going to keep retaliating. And it certainly feels pleasurable to do so. The reason it feels pleasurable is because Mother Nature figured at the beginning that this is what you need for survival. So she made it appealing, give you a sweet feeling. But things have changed upon the arrival of Buddha, Christ, St. Francis, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Dalai Lama, they presented an alternative and it's up to us to say yes or no. Make sense to everybody? Okay, let's have one last question 
on this part? How, how do you separate out the anger and the retaliation? Because I heard that part of be, anger comes up. Anger is your like. healthy feeling response. And you're going to speak up and uh, show your anger, but you're not going to step over the line and then retaliate. And he reminded me of another uh, another thing I wanted to mention quickly. Remember that all of the five givens have one thing in common. They all represent something that we're either losing or um, lamenting the lack of. So actually grief goes with all five of the givens. Goes with any given, even uh, earthquake. And we've become very adept over the centuries in avoiding grief. I read a very interesting book once by uh, a couple, two psychiatrists, German. Book was written right after World War II when Germany was rebuilding. The topic of the book was, I don't remember the title, but I read it, and the topic was, why are we rebuilding before we grieve what happened? Why are we avoiding grief about these terrible things that we just did? I thought, wow, what a great question. And um, Shakespeare has the answer in just one line in Troilus and Cressida. Uh, in his day, the word woe, W-O-E, meant grief. The hope of revenge shall hide our inward woe. As long as we know we can get back at them, we don't have to feel the grief because we're making up for it on our own. The hope of revenge shall hide. He was smart enough to know it doesn't get rid of it. It just hides it. The hope of revenge shall hide our inward grief. We'll do something externally. We won't have to feel it internally. And one last thing I want to point out about this is that um, sometimes we think that the those who do evil things should be punished. And those who do good things should be rewarded. These don't go with spiritual consciousness. Those who do evil need our help toward conversion, restoration to the community. Those who do good receive the reward internally rather than have to be paid for it outside, as in virtue is its own reward. But deeper than this is, is another realization. Because we could also think that if I do good things, if I do everything right, 
I should have a good life. I should have good luck if I do right and people who do wrong should have bad luck. We might have that belief. Very primitive. We want to release ourselves from that. And the way to release ourselves, first of all, um, just by a simple statement, is to say yes to this. Pain is not a punishment. And happiness is not a reward. That's more in keeping with the givens of life. Because we've seen over and over again that terrible people have good luck or have good things happen to them and wonderful people have terrible luck and have terrible things happen to them. So it must be that there's nobody up in the sky who's making sure that everybody gets his or hers. It must be just open-ended. And sometimes you can be wonderful but you just don't get a reward. Sometimes you can be terrible and do get a reward. The equivalent of life is not fair. Yeah. Or it could work that, you know, a good person gets something good and a bad person gets something bad. As we fully enter the practice of loving kindness, we don't want the bad people to be hurt. We want their conversion. Remember that um, time when it's not, I don't think it's still happening. I hope they made it illegal. But there was some um, fundamentalist Christian group. They were against war. No problem there. But they were gathering at, as a group in front of the church where there would be a funeral for a soldier who just uh, who died in Iraq and just came home. Now the family's there. They're having a funeral. And they would stand outside with uh, placards and, sh- and scream out, you were stupid to go to war. You're going to go to hell. They were saying horrible things like that to the dead soldier. Anyway, I saw a an interview uh, of the leader of this group. And the interviewer said, um, doesn't your Bible say that, you know, people can repent? Uh, don't you want the the people to repent for uh, the fact of war and violence and so forth? Don't you want them to learn, you know, the way of Christ and, and act differently? This is what he said. I, I, I was so shocked. He said, no, I don't want them to repent. I want them to go to hell where they belong. I thought, what? <laughs> I mean, he wanted punishment, not repentance. Anyway, there's some people like that. So we just were keeping that in mind. Uh, that's certainly far away from 
from our Buddhist teachings. But that's somebody who believes that you should be punished if you do wrong. Punishment as hurt and penalty, not punishment as amends make up for it. Okay, so let's just take a look at one more and then we're going to take our break because I'm saving the one about um, couples, love, you know, people are not loving all the time uh, for, for the end. But let's just go on to our pain as part of life. And I'm on page 45 and I'm just reading the first paragraph. A given of life is that there is a cost to everything and that suffering is part of that cost. This given is stated in the first noble truth of Buddhism, which is often translated, life is suffering, or life is unsatisfactory. Or you could say, there is suffering. Another way of stating this truth or given is that Uh, Oh, there it is. Pain is not a punishment. Happiness is not a reward. They are simply features of anybody's existence. So accepting the fact that pain will be part of life and that you don't get an exemption from this given or any given by uh, whatever you do is a step toward adulthood. It's the childish belief that I'm supposed to get a gold star when I get the spelling words all correct. That would not be an adult belief. Because you could do everything right and get nothing. Or you could suffer um, without any explanation. My cousin had a serious disease. He's in Connecticut. And of course, I called him to say I was sorry about this. And he said, "Um, at first I asked, why did this happen to me? But now I'm saying, why not? I said, Joe, That's a great transition that you've made. We want to get rid of this. I didn't say this to him, but we want to get rid of this idea of I'm special. These things shouldn't happen to me. Or another way of saying it is in the full pronouncing of the word yes, implicitly we are stating anything that can happen to any human can happen to me. Reminds me of a poem by the ancient Roman poet Terence who says, nothing human is alien from me. In other words, it it all fits. Anything that can happen to any human that fits with who I am and where I'm going in my life. And I don't get 
a special deal. So, when it comes to this suffering, it's, um, that's the pain I mentioned <clears throat> as not a punishment. And some people make the distinction between suffering and pain, like pain is something that actually happens, like a given, and then suffering is when you turn it into something even worse. So you could use that distinction. Um, But basically what we're saying here is that um, there's something about suffering that has some kind of um, deepening power it does something to you to to change your, uh, like let's say you find out you have cancer, you have a new sense of your own mortality. You have become more realistic and you you are moving in the direction of absolute fidelity to reality. as opposed to the magical thinking, the never-never land of, you know, these terrible things shouldn't happen to me. So I'm, I'm, I'm remaining faithful to the real rather than to the ideal that I've been carrying around in my head for so long. Questions about this? Does this make sense to you? I thought I had something in here in the book on, oh yes, I have something on, you know, how to, when someone else is suffering, how to be with that. Um, a friend, I'm on 57. A friend who is suffering in our presence soon knows with certainty that it's always all right to be in disarray, depressed, or confused when around us. He knows he will not be expected to, quote, snap out of it, unquote. He knows he will be not talked out of it with comforting quotations from Buddha or Christ. The person in pain is granted access to the hard and pained corners in her psyche within this holding environment of empathy. She has found a companion who can sit with her in the dark. Her worst side can become visible without her being blamed or shamed. Feeling sorry for someone is not compassion since it's ultimately hierarchical. Compassion happens when we accept the other as an equal and the other's pain as what we may feel sometimes too. So we say this, let's just sit beside one another and look at this together. This happened to you. Let me be with you as we witness this together. Reminds me of the 23rd Psalm. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. 
So he won't, he, uh, the, the heavenly companion, he won't help you jump over the mountain. He will only walk with you through the valley. And his willingness to do that erases all your fear because fear thrives on isolation. And when you feel companionship, there is no isolation. Who is this mysterious companion? The other people in your AA program, your friends, your partner, the people you trust, or a higher power that uh, has no name. It's whatever works for you. Questions about this part? Okay, uh, Kirk. Is that empathy of active companionship of just abiding with someone else in the darkness, is that somehow related to also why it might be uh, better not to form, to try not to form a boundary where when you feel that someone else has been wronged, and you're not going to abide by that wrong. You are outraged by that wrong. Rather than treating that person with loving kindness, the wronger, mm-hmm. you exile, you, I'm not going to say you exile them, but you say that, that will not abide. You're going beyond my boundary hurting that person. What you're really doing is not exiling them. You are taking yourself away from that situation by placing a boundary. I will not go there where you're going. Hmm. But that person always feels judged by that boundary when they see it come up. That you are actually trying to exile them as what they feel like. So there is no opportunity to help them redeem the situation. But that wouldn't be your task. Yeah. You're not supposed to make sure it all comes right out right for everybody. You're taking care of yourself. You're speaking up. You're not retaliating. You're setting boundaries. It all fits. And you're always open to a discussion about it. So explain what I'm doing. Yeah. Okay, so um, the uh, better response when someone else is harmed and you don't want to let that stand is to go sit with the person that was harmed. Help them hold that wound. Yes. Rather than uh, feel like you are going to do something between the three of them or the three of us, right? That redeems the situation. Yeah. 
Very much Thank so. you. Thank you. Reminds me of uh, Romeo's other statements. I still will stay with thee. Those are wonderful words to hear when you're feeling lonely, isolated, destabilized. Not, I'll make it better. Not, why don't you do this? Not, if you hadn't done this, you wouldn't be feeling this now. Not that, but I still will stay with thee. I'll just be right here with you. When I offer that, I'm offering something enormously empowering. Uh, Yeah. Kind of in this vein, uh, I have a friend who's going through a lot of through a lot of pain, and she seems to she stays there in that victim place. And yeah, I don't want. I want to be there for her, or I did, but I'm tired of it. I'm like, <laughs> see a lawyer, get a therapist, <laughs> do. <you know? laughs> um, yeah, we hate to so sit. So then and... there's a. Mm-hmm, I go mean, ahead. I care about her, but it doesn't seem like she's taking responsibility and taking some steps. Yeah, it's really not necessary to sit for very long. Uh, in a situation where the other person has chosen not to do anything that she can do. In other words, you're just staying with a victim. That's different from staying with somebody who's suffering and can't really get out of it. We all know the different feeling. Because even in the 23rd Psalm, to go back to that, Remember that it says, yea, though I walk through the valley. In other words, he is doing something. He's walking through. If it were written like this, I'm a total victim, so I'm just going to lie down flat in this dark valley (laughs) and not do a damn thing to help myself. He would not get the second half, thou art with me. (laughs) He'd get, okay, go ahead, stay there. (laughs) Uh, Somebody else had a comment? Okay, I just wanted to share, um, before we take our break, um, on, now I'm on 62, which is at the end of this chapter. And I guess I had gone into some things about the dark side in this chapter, because, of course, that's part of what we're looking at when there is pain in our life. Um, And I'm saying we are nourished. Oh, I'll go for a little higher. We appreciate deserts as useful topographies of the planet, but we do not often trust that our own empty and desolate moments can be incubation periods in the evolutionary ecology of our inner world. Each day includes a noon of clarity and a midnight of mystery. Since this happens so regularly and for all of us, it must be legitimate 
and even useful to be fully clear and happy at times and at other times unhappy and in the dark. Indeed, in the dark is when the bread rises. We are nourished by the light and the dark and the spiritual style is to find a way to say yes mindfully to both. As I say yes to the fact of my suffering, may I accept the dark side of life and find a way through it, and may I then become an escort of compassion to those who also suffer. It's always both. It's always I go through something and I live through my suffering and I help those who are in the same boat. That's the bodhisattva vow. That's what makes our practice more than just something for me. It's through me to everyone. Like what all the cherry trees are doing. They're not just producing cherries for no reason. They're presenting them to all of us. Okay, so we're going to take a short break and then we will be back and wind up. Oh, yeah. Thanks for the help. Are you coming to the... Oh, no, you couldn't come to the Zen. Yeah, that's next weekend, right? Yeah. yeah. I'm busy that weekend. Okay. Can I ask you a question? Yes. Let's walk
Is it okay? I think we're good. I just want to see. Turn around, let me just. Uh, elaborate on a little bit more about the transaction and interaction like you mentioned earlier well the transaction is where you're still trying to work things out and the interaction is your friends and you don't talk about the issues that are not worked out so you, are like you can save that for th Okay, we're about ready. <clears throat> so, um, first, do we have any leftover questions from before? Okay, because we're going to go on to our fifth given, which is that people are not loving and loyal all the time. And um, I'm on page 66 of Five True Things. Sometimes people keep their promises, the essence of trust and commitment. Keep your promises. Sometimes people keep their promises and sometimes they do not. So if I came in expecting that since you had been so loyal during all of this romantic, enjoyable time that we've just experienced, you're always going to be this way. First, that's contrary to our Buddhist teaching about impermanence. And secondly, it's only a gamble that the person might continue to be trustworthy or the other option is might not be totally trustworthy. So I'm less likely to blame if I get it that anybody can um, fail in trustworthiness. I'll say a little more about this in a minute. <clears throat> Sometimes people love us loyally and faithfully, even unconditionally. 
Sometimes they hate, reject, abandon, or betray us. An adult has learned to take all this in stride. In stride also includes having feelings about it, including grief. An adult has learned, oh, we feel the pain, but it does not devastate or destabilize us. We receive love with openness and appreciation. We receive loyalty with gratitude. We handle betrayal with the strength we gained from our psychological work. We let go of retaliation and act with compassion thanks to our spiritual practices. We do not want to be strongly affected by what others do. No, we do not want to be so strongly affected by what others do that we lose our own ability to love which is all that matters to us now. Some people will like us, some will dislike us, some come through for us, some betray us, some care tenderly about our feelings, some trample them underfoot. Accepting this variety as a given makes it less likely that we will let the reactions of others determine our personal worth. Our spiritual practice is a straightforward yes to the full spectrum of human responses we will encounter in this lifetime. This delivers us from having to feel bad about ourselves or to make others wrong for not loving us. No human being was ever loved or treated respectfully by everyone. That has to settle in as a simple fact of life then we mindfully notice others' reactions to us and go on loving and respecting others no matter what. Our capacity to love has survived unscathed. So as long as your capacity to love has survived, and it's quite able to do that because our capacity to love is a a lifetime one, you could never lose it, no matter how others treat you, you still have the ability to go on loving. What great news about us. So regarding trust, um, and I talk about this in my other book, Daring to Trust, but I'll just briefly uh, make this particular point. The child's trust is in the parent directly. So child trusts that the parent will provide the milk, will provide the warmth, will provide the holding, will provide the comfort, and so forth. And this trust is built by a thousand examples in which the parent did come through. And even if the parent failed here or there, as the child learns object constancy, he will get it that the same one who fulfills my needs is the one who sometimes doesn't fulfill my needs. And that's okay because the bond between us is what matters. 
So if I bring that into adult life, then I start, I get it, that a given is that just as my parents sometimes did and sometimes didn't come through, so my partner sometimes does and sometimes doesn't come through. This changes my relationship to trust. Instead of trust being something that is directed toward a particular person, we direct our trust at ourselves. So now it's here in this relationship, I trust myself. See how we moved out of childhood, where it's I trust my parent. You could not trust yourself to find milk from some other source. You had to trust your mother. Only she has the milk that you need. So we get it. I trust my parent. But in adult life, when we have access to need fulfillment in a variety of places, it all and now that we get it, that one of the givens of life is people are not always trustworthy in fulfilling our needs, we need a new model altogether. This new model is, I trust myself to receive your love and trustworthiness when it's there. with appreciation. And I trust myself to handle betrayal if it happens without, with an ouch, and without retaliating. First part is psychological, with an ouch, assertiveness training. Second part is spiritual, as we talked about before. So, once I get it, that the adult style is not to place all your trust in someone, knowing now that nobody is entirely reliable although it could happen that somebody acts reliably all the time. But it's a gamble either way because somebody could act that way all the time or somebody could act that way some of the time or somebody could act that way none of the time. Humans have betrayal as one of their, uh, shall we say, potentialities. So given that, I'm going to trust myself And I'm going to be right there and receive all your trustworthiness and I'm going to appreciate it. And if you don't come through, I have a way of handling it. I'm going to say, ouch. I'm going to see if we can work it out. I'm going to try to repair the rupture. One thing I'm not going to do is I'm not going to do the same to you as what you did to me. 
because I have found a practice that has upgraded me. So when you go low, I go high. To quote, <laughs> to quote somebody we all know. Uh, first of all, any questions about this part to make sense to you? See, it's a different way of looking at it because it puts the whole topic into your hands. We have a question in the back. Somebody have a microphone? Um, Rather than it all depends on you. David. Yeah. What the heck? Evolutionary uh, value value, uh, is in betrayal. Why did it happen? Why do we have it? Uh... Hmm. That's a hard one. I guess it's I guess it's that if you're out for your own happiness, you will put aside a commitment when something better comes along. Does that make sense to everybody? In other words, if we're geared to our own self-gratification, then commitments no longer are so important as our fulfilling our own purposes. Thank you. You're welcome. I have a question. Um, It feels like when you say this, what comes up for me is that we're setting the expectation really low for humans to, um, no, I mean, <laughs> not sarcastically, but it's almost like we're, we're, we're not wanting to hold up people to certain standards, so then we're just kind of setting up a system of saying, well, okay, th- then I'll feel this way sometimes, but if we both people agree to commit in a value of trust, can't we expect that of the other person? If no. That- <laughs> Certainly not. <laughs> no, because expect is one way. It's um, um, it's trying to get what you want and have somebody confirm that you will definitely get it. And it comes from fear that you won't be able to handle it if he doesn't come through. So you're putting the accent on, you've got to assure me that nothing will go wrong. It puts the relation, it shows that the relationship is on very, very thin ice when you demand that somebody be absolutely loyal in every way. And uh, that does not fit the given of life that anybody could be disloyal, unfaithful, untruthful, ungenerous, un-anything because we all have, as somebody mentioned, you know, about the combination of opposites, we all have all the opposites inside of us. 
something like um, uh, as if there were, shall we say, uh, buttons inside. If you press the anybody, everybody has the button that says betrayal, and everybody has the one that says fidelity, and it just matter. And it's a matter of which one you're going to press. But anybody can press any one. Otherwise, we wouldn't be fully human. He has the capacity to be faithful, but he does not have the capacity to be unfaithful. That's not a full human being because we're supposed to have all the options. But we do want to be careful about being so unsure of ourselves that we've made it very important that the other person be fully committed. And of course, it's the same thing again. It's the fear of grief. Don't let me have to be in mourning. Keep me safe. And nobody can really do that fully. Um, and it's not really a good idea to want it because it doesn't match the givens of human life. Uh, yeah. I'm just curious how this, if this paradigm looks different if one does not have that kind of relationship with their parent of being able to trust them. Couldn't even trust your parents? Right. Then you will have a very hard time trusting anyone else, of course, because we learn how to trust from our original trust experience, which happens in the very earliest days of life. And uh, not all hope is lost because then we could work on that in therapy and it'll be a long, hard uphill work. But uh, you'd be trying to restore your capacity to trust when you weren't given it, when it wasn't put in place originally. That would be a very serious issue, someone who couldn't trust anybody. Yeah. Just to follow up on the previous question, I don't know if this is kind of what you were touching on, but I guess perhaps there could be a natural question of like, if we can't expect 100% fidelity or 100% loyalty, then like, what is the point? What is the point of commitments or make, making these, you know, bids of trust? Because you love a good story, <laughs> <laughs> and that's what it's going to be. So uh, let's just remind ourselves. So expectations. Dicey, not valid. Agreements, so this 
expectation goes one way. I expect of you. Agreement goes two ways. We made an agreement to be faithful to each other, let's say. Agreements may or may not be kept. Another way of saying it is there is no knock em dead assurance that everything can work the way we want it to. Hence, the things we cannot change. So, expectations are certainly not valid. Agreements are really our only option. But at times, even they might not be kept. This is a teaching about forgiveness. It's not a guarantee that we will never feel abandoned. Nobody can make that guarantee to us. Steve. Yeah, um, I just wanted to share for um, the last two comments that we've had. I don't think it's having a low expectation of people or thinking less of people or... um, I think it's awakening. True awakening is, is the Buddhist teaching of non-duality. Everybody has um, those two capacities you talked about. And so once we accept that everybody has both of those, <clears throat> we're not um, lowering our expectation of our partners or our friends or our family. We're just acknowledging that, that if I have both of those and you have both of those, um, anything could happen. And so we can go into it fully um, energized and fully um, ready to commit as long as we have that awakened quality that says, and I understand that I have both both in me and you have both in you. And, and you know, as Suzuki Roshi famously said, you're all perfect just as you are, and you could all use a little improvement. <laughs> Very good way of putting it. Thank you, Steve. And Dave, if I could just make one more comment. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I come from a Christian background, and... I think, like, one of the difficulties in the, like, traditional evangelical realm is that there often is this, like, unrealistic expectation of, like, you know, perfection or complete fidelity. And I think oftentimes this lack of awakening, as you could phrase it, is leads to a lot of shame or just there's kind of this unwillingness to acknowledge that button you're talking about of, you know, unfaithfulness or wrongdoing or retaliation. Um, but, I, you know, I think we, we don't do, do ourselves well when we don't acknowledge that. So I appreciate, you know, your discussion about that. Well, thank you. Yeah. Glad you brought that up. So what does the parent not do with the infant for the infant to build trust? Not consistently respond to the needs, not pay attention to the needs, not respect the needs as valid, try to convince the infant that he doesn't have that need, nor should he. So it's like mirroring and like the orphanage described. Not mirroring, right. 
not mirroring his actual feelings, but imposing one's own feelings on the infant. Thank you. It would be the opposite of true nurturance, which um, comes to parents as a, um, an instinct. You'd be overriding the instinct to be a mirroring, trustworthy parent because you have so many of your own issues that get in the way. So I can't see you because I've got so many of my own problems. And we're sorry when that happens, but it certainly is dangerous to the child in question. I just have a, a but most people do have a trustworthy original experience. So a good, it only has to be good enough, according to Winnicott, child psychiatrist. It doesn't have to be perfect. Follow-up question to the first one over here. Um, was oh, yeah. Just if two people make an agreement... Yes. I know I'm not trying to drill this, but really, just what's, if two yeah, people okay. make an agreement, then where does accountability come into the whole thing? We're both accountable, and it's not totally reliable that we will come through. Yes, I admit I'm re- accountable, and uh, it's just, I don't know, something happened. And I just lost control of myself and did what I did. Remember to go back to anything can happen to anyone. To use relationship as a guard against the possibility of ever having to be hurt would certainly not work very well as a style. And since everything that happens, and this is, by the way, from my point of view, the very foundation of hope, since everything that happens, without exception, can become the basis of our practice, then everything that happens is ultimately useful. You might say that everything that happens is something like the body of a pig. It may not be so pretty to look at, but absolutely everything about it, from snout to tail, is of value. Except the oink of complaint. (laughs) Other questions? Oh, yeah. Charles. Yeah. Uh, It's a question about the um, people aren't loving all the time. And yeah. um, I want to bring the five A's into that. 
because yeah. uh, and I don't know if everybody knows what they are, but I, you've mentioned them. Um, yeah, I can list them right after. Yeah, your question. Um, I, I kind of came to the conclusion the other day that um, four out of five isn't good enough to be in a loving relationship. To either, that's kind of how I. Um, I just had this sort of realization. Is that valid? Yeah, you want all of them, but in moderate Not amounts. All the time. Yeah, all but in moderate amounts. Not all the time, but most of the time. Good way to put it would be: uh, I need uh, good enough love most of the time, instead of. Perfect love all the time. Uh, the five A's that he's referring to, I'll just mention them quickly because it's not totally part of our topic. And some of you have already heard this, but um, we came into the world with five very specific needs. We certainly needed somebody to pay attention to what was important to our survival. We certainly needed somebody to hold us because our brain fully develops only when others caress us and cuddle us. That's just the nature of us as mammals. And uh, Winnicott also has another statement only in the arms of someone can the first I am be pronounced or rather risked. Only in the arms of someone can I be who I am. Can I risk being who I am? Then when I start to, oh, and then, so he, they pay attention to me. They know that I want to be fed or changed or held. They do hold me. They value me. It's okay with them that I am the gender that I am. Not that they were hoping for a different gender. They appreciate me just as I am. When I start to demonstrate certain personality characteristics, they accept them. They accept me as I am rather than as they want me to be. When the time comes for me to move on my own, crawl across the floor instead of being carried across, or leave altogether and go to school, or leave even more so and go to college, they totally allow the goings. So these are my original needs. And all I needed to, to become a healthy person is that somebody responded to these five in a good enough way, at least enough times that I can remember them. And when you add these up, 
they spell love. How do I know someone loves me? He attentively shows me affection, appreciation, accepts me as I am, allows me to come and go. These original needs become the needs in adult relationship. The very same ones, we just carry them over. If they were fulfilled originally by our parents, then we've had the sense of fulfillment. So ever after, we will be satisfied with a moderate response from other humans. If they weren't fulfilled in childhood, we will have a bottomless pit and we will never get enough from others. No matter what they give us, we'll feel like something's missing and we'll be craving more. And that puts a great burden on the other, obviously. Whereas when you hold your needs moderately, I just want some attention, not constant. I just want some affection, not we hang on each other all the time. I just want some appreciation, so forth. Um, the one who, who never had these needs met just can't help it. It's left uh, such a big hole inside, H-O-L-E, that uh, he's constantly trying to fill it, and yet it can't be filled. Something like the Buddhist uh, belief in the hell realm in which you have a constant hunger, but you just have a pinhole-sized mouth. So in other words, you can't ever get enough. And you, um, in other words, when the needs are fulfilled, you gain the capacity for moderation. And when the needs are not fulfilled, you have no capacity for moderation. And so you just keep craving something that uh, you're never satisfied with. It's a horrible position to be in. Obviously, our Buddhist practice is against the, is saying that the origin of suffering is this kind of craving. But it's not that we brought it on ourselves. Our parents are implicated in it. So that's what he means by the five A's. And when these are given to someone in a good enough way, most of the time. That would be the equivalent of a healthy childhood. Hardly ever given, not given at all. Only one given by grandma and none of the others by anybody. Then we're not going to have a very uh, healthy prospect for the future. Or another way of saying it is, before getting together with somebody, be sure to inquire carefully into what childhood was like. Because whatever was missing, you will be expected to provide. And you may have to provide to someone who is insatiable. <laughs> 
So you want to do the same thing the therapist does. Let's start with what happened in your childhood. (laughs) Humorous, but there's a ring of truth to it. I'm sure my mother never asked my father, what was your childhood like? She knew they're both Italian. (laughs) We know what it was like. I never asked, but now I think I would. Yeah. Families often, you know, the parent is not connected and then the capacity to the kid and then the cycle just continues. And obviously there's therapy, but it feels a little bit like an endless cycle um, at times. The only way to move out of it Um, And there is a way, so it's not as if you're totally lost and you're in despair because you were so messed up in childhood, now you can't have a healthy relationship. That could happen with excessive abuse. But in the ordinary experience, um, where there were just some failures at mirroring, misattunements, you can work on it in your own therapy, and of course, it will take us back to the feeling that goes with all the givens of life. I will grieve what I lost or missed without blaming my parents or holding any ill will against them. Otherwise, it's not sincere. It can't be about them. That's transaction. Transactions with them are over. Now the transactions with them are as other adults in the world. You're going to be respectful. You're going to help them. If they need special care, you're going to try to line it up for them. But the transaction of childhood, that is no longer happening. So you'd be grieving what was missing And there's something about the grieving that leads, as we saw before, to a letting go and a going on. And when you go on, it's as in a self-parenting style. Oh, then I will pay attention to my own needs. I will appreciate myself. I will allow myself to make choices that are good for me. Addicts can't go there. He makes the choices that are not good. He takes all the uh, insatiability that really is, is associated with childhood and he thinks that Jim Beam, Johnny Walker, they will help me. They will make a difference. They will help me hide my inward woe. And they certainly do, temporarily. But once they take over, then it's just a painful predicament to be in. Other questions about this? Joan?
So, um, I my reaction to all this is it feels like there's so much more spaciousness in life with this um, orientation. And I'm interested, you had said all of these um, concepts came to you through things that you learned in your own life. And I'm interested if you would be willing to tell us about some kind of example of a relationship that really shifted as you brought these practices to something that, as you brought these practices to a relationship where it hadn't been before. Shifted in what sense? Like, uh, well, just how you how you experienced it, or just your ex- experience. Yeah, the more conscious I am of how my childhood figures in to my level of need, the more um, adult I become. I remember a little example of that. Um, Of course, I was the firstborn of my generation. And uh, we lived in an extended family. So we have the parents and the grandparents and the aunts and, you know, great aunts and so forth. And uh, they loved me to pieces, as you can imagine. And they, you know, just because I was the first one. And um, they made a fuss over me. And they were always right there for me. Anyway, I went to visit my, and now they're all gone, of course. And a few years ago, I went to visit my sister in New England. And uh, when I came back, and, you know, they were greeting me, and it was nice to be there and so forth. But when I came back, I said to my sister, um, gee, I feel so different. Um, you know, everybody was glad to see me, but nobody really made a fuss over me. (laughs) And she said this, which was like life-changing. She said, David, you cannot expect that anybody in this day and age will show you affection the way old Italian ladies showed it in 1945. It's not going to happen. I said, well, that expectation bites the dust. (laughs) But I thought, oh my God, of course she's right. I'll just have to feel the nostalgia of it. And it's still okay to yearn for it. But not to expect it. Other questions about this part of it? Hold it one sec. Let's get the mic. Right here. So you can ask, but don't expect. Yeah. Yes, you can ask, but not expect. Uh, Right here. Uh, Just a couple things about trust. And uh, first, um, I was raised by, uh, or I was born to a single mom and uh, who really wasn't there very much of the time. So I didn't really even get a chance to see many of those five A's. 
And yet I never doubted that I was loved. You know, I felt that's just, that was something that was there for me. Uh, and I think I've grown up being able to trust myself more than anything else. Good. Um, but then just the other piece about trust is I, I'm not sure where the line is between it being a given and an expectation, which, right, we just... It's not a given that you'll be able to trust. It's a given that you might be able to trust or might not. That's the given. The expectation is I want to trust and the, shall we say, adult version of it all is I will do what you just said. I will trust myself that when someone's trustworthy, I'll know it and I will be appreciative. And when they're not, I'll chalk it up to, well, that's how humans are. And I won't do the same to others as they do to me because I have a new practice that doesn't take me there. Take me there. Make sense to everybody? Thanks. Okay. I uh, wanted to point something out in this same chapter. Um, If you have the book... And you just take a look. Um, I'm on page 75, Givens of Adult Relating. Oh, I use the word fuss based on my own experience. You may not be shown all the fuss you received in childhood. (laughs) And this may feel like the equivalent of not being loved which is certainly what I felt. How dare they not make a fuss over me? It is normal that the level of attention paid to you changes throughout life from rapt attention in infancy by the parents to quasi-invisibility in old age. So we would have to be okay with the full spectrum of, you know, how people look at us. They stared and gazed at us in infancy. They hardly see us in old age and everything in between. You'd have to be okay with this. No matter, secondly, no matter how your parents may have mistreated you, they are not stopping you now from doing at least some of the therapeutic work that it takes to recover. You will always see how your parents influence the shape your life has taken, but you can let go of blaming them. Blaming parents, equivalent of not having left home yet, because you're still transacting instead of interacting. When the gnawing question is, why am I not getting what I want in life? One of the questions behind it may be, what am I still carrying with me from the past? Like what expectations? Love is a teaching device. 
when your parents or other loving adults showed you one or more of the five A's? They were doing more than just fulfilling your needs. They were teaching you exactly how to give those very same A's to yourself and to others. Every cell of your body remembers how. Your mind may be saying, I want a peaceful relationship. But your body may want what it had in childhood. The drama of recurrent fear and unsatisfied desire. A giveaway to this dynamic is if you have a tendency to stir the pot getting back at a partner rather than addressing, processing, and resolving the issue you're both facing. Seeking drama, in other words, um, adrenaline, which is the basis of all addiction, we're addicted to the adrenaline, and then we use different vehicles to get the adrenaline high. Alcohol, drugs, gambling, sex, so forth. Seeking drama means um, fearing and desiring uproar at the same time. For instance, in real conflict resolution, you stop arguing when you notice it's not working. If you continue to argue, you're looking for drama. And you may be looking for the drama because that's what you had in childhood. Remember, the familiar is the most seductive. purpose of relationship is the same as the purpose of our work and life, to become fully evolved adults who give and receive the five A's abundantly. The criterion for being in a relationship is the same as that of any important choice in life. And this is such a great question to ask in any relationship or friendship. Is this a context in which I will find the safety to be myself? Will it be safe here, in this marriage, in this relationship, in this job, in this friendship, to live in accord with my deepest needs and wishes wishes, and to fulfill my life purposes? So those are some examples. I have another page or two listing them. Um, And you can take a look at them on your own. But um, that gets us into the overall issue that we're talking about. No matter how, now I'm on 80. No matter how others treat us no matter what the givens of our relationship, we can commit ourselves to being loving and loyal as much as we possibly can. And as a spiritual practice, ask yourself about the signs that your own love for someone is truly unconditional. For instance, do you sense sense your heart opening when you're with the other other? Do you maintain a commitment to nurture one another? Do you let go of grudges from the past 
maintain your own boundaries and respect the boundaries of the other. Questions about this part? Okay, we have a question in the back. About the matter of safety, I think earlier you had said uh, something to the effect of um, don't don't seek safety, or I might be misunderstanding or misrepresenting. Um, and then in that passage, you just said, "Can I be safe?" So it's not a craving for safety; it's not a demand for it. It's a recognition that it's a movable. It's a pos- it's possibly impermanence like everything else but I always start off looking for safety it's okay to look for it it's okay to want it but we could never really demand it or expect it that would be the adult version of how we hold the issue of safety as opposed to well you promised safety and you didn't give it to me you can say that that's a form of ouch but as soon as it turns into blame, now you know you're avoiding the grief, which is the true reaction to the broken promise. So we're talking about the five things of the many thousands of things that we cannot change. And we're finding out that when we say yes and accept them as conditions of existence for all of us, we grow in depth, compassion, and character. Question? Yes. um, This ties, I I think this could apply to any relationship, but I'm asking more about with the, um, you know, the childhood trauma or, you know, that we have to, um, uh, not blame our parents, but I'm curious if this um, excusing, is that just a form of blaming, you know, with the, well, they didn't know any better, or that's how they were raised. Is that not truly not blaming? Is that a type of blame? Mm-hmm. I know what you mean. Uh, well, let me answer it this way. Uh, for many years, I've heard, and so have you, regarding our parents. Well, they were doing the best they could. And that is kind of letting them off the hook. I get that. It's also a compassionate way of putting it. But I have changed it in my own vocabulary. Leave it up to you as to how you want to put it. I no longer say they were doing the best they could, mainly because, one, I don't believe it. (laughs) And two, when I look at myself, I realize that I only sometimes do the best I can. I would say in teaching this class today that I was doing the best that I could. I think I could say that. But when I went out to the um, uh, deli for lunch and I ate those potato chips, I was not doing the best I could. I was not eating something that is truly good for you. I was eating something that sure tastes good but it's not really the right thing for your diet. 
So I get it that sometimes I am doing my best and other times I'm not. And I'm just going to be okay with that and so forth. So I've changed it. Instead of saying our parents were doing, were always doing their best, now I put it this way. My parents were always doing what they were willing to do. That I can get behind. I think they really were doing what they were willing to do. I don't think they were doing the best they could all the time. Sometimes I'm sure they were. Just like myself, sometimes they were, sometimes they weren't. But when you say they were always doing their best, uh, that's not how human beings operate. But it is certainly true that they were, that they and we are doing what we're willing to do. Doesn't give you much consolation. <laughs> but uh, at least it gives them something of an appreciation. So let's have one final question and then we're going to do our winding up right here. Yes, she has a microphone for you. Isn't it a bit tautological to say that they were doing what they were willing to do? Couldn't you just say yeah, it doesn't they say did much. what they did? They what? Couldn't you just say more simply they did what they did? It seems a little tautological to say they were doing what they were willing to do because, you know, you do it, everybody does what they're willing to do. I guess that does make sense. They did, so that shaves it down even more. <laughs> Well, I could say this about my parents, but not everybody can say this. I could say that they were never being malicious. I could say that. I don't think they were ever seriously trying to harm me. And you have to come up with your own way of describing it. Well, I'd like to end with our taking a look at our affirmation. And I'm just going to go through it. I'm going to read it once and while we can all look at it. It's in our book. Um, uh, well, I gave everybody a copy, but it's in the book somewhere. And it serves as a kind, what I do is I use this every morning to start my day with. But you can use it at any time. Kind of an affirmation and aspiration at the same time. May I show all the love I have in any way I can, today and all the time, to everyone, including me. Since love is what we are and why we're here. May all that happens to me be an opportunity of grace to love much more and fear much less. I dedicate myself to make this world one sacred heart of love. So I'm beginning with wanting 
to show love how in any way I can, when, today, and all the time, to whom, to everyone, including myself, that what loving-kindness practice has made that legitimate. We can love ourselves without feeling selfish. Why am I doing this? It's because love is what I actually am. In Buddhism, we have the teaching that there is no separate self, that all of us are joined together. But being joined together is what love is about. Hence, love is what we are. Selfless love. And it's why we're here. We're here so we can show it. Then I make a uh, aspiration. I ask that I have a new way of looking at what happens to me. I don't just see it as a series of happenings, good luck and bad luck. I'm going to give a new meaning to happenings, givens. May all that happens to me today become opportunities. Where did this opportunity come from? It came from grace, from the gift dimension of life, from a power beyond our own ego. And what is it an opportunity for? For two practices. First, to love even more and to fear even less. That is to open more and to close less. And then finally, in the bodhisattva style, in which I take all the wonderful, good realizations and powerful experience of the Dharma and want to share it with everyone, I make a dedication. I'm dedicating myself to a very big evolutionary task. I single-handedly want to make this whole world one sacred heart of love. That's the equivalent of the um, bodhisattva vows. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them all. There's not enough love in the world. I vow to bring enough love for everyone. So somehow when you put all this together, you come up with a very loving way of being in the world. So if you're open to it, let's just say it all together and we're going to pause at the end of each line and um, you're going to keep this with you and use it um, as often as you would like. May I show all the love I have in any way I can today and all the time to everyone, including me, since love is what we are and why we're here. May all that happens to me be an opportunity of grace to love much more and fear much less. 
I dedicate myself to make this world one sacred heart of love. Well, it's been a real gift and thrill to me to be here with you today. This is one sacred heart of love. So thank you very much for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.